I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and sitting in today is my co-host, Kim Garner. We'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Barry Goldfarb is a business leader and entrepreneur with very wide-ranging and eclectic interests. From his early days as an All-American college athlete, he instinctively understood his drive to win and the teamwork required to do so. His collection of successful businesses are diverse, from art galleries to banking institutions to his three award-winning wineries in California. His passion for wine and the teamwork required to consistently produce world-class wines is positively inspiring. And you don't have to be a wine lover to love this interview. So join us as we rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Barry Goldfarb. So you grew up where? Grew up in Los Angeles. Native? Native Native of Los Angeles, born at the old Cedars Hospital, which is now the Scientology headquarters. Talk about your background. Are you an only child? Do you have siblings? No, I have an older sister who's three and a half years older than myself and grew up in Los Angeles. Father died when I was seven years old. He was 44 years old. And to me, that was a big deal in my life when I was 44. You know, you kind of worry like, hey, does somebody have your number? What's going on? But I made it past that. And now I'm the ripe old age of 71. Now, where did you go to high school? Went to Hamilton High School. And I just moved into that district. So when I started high school, didn't really know anybody. It was a small class. They used to have a winter and summer graduations. And so our class was only, you know, less than 300 kids. So kind of everybody knew everybody versus the summer class was a thousand kids where, you know, people didn't really know each other. I worked throughout high school. I actually had a job in the morning and a a job at evenings all through high school. And you were a swimmer. I swam, okay? And swimming got me actually into uh, college where I got a, you know, an athletic scholarship. And I was fortunate to become a collegiate All-American swimmer. I saw the picture of you when you were in the pool, you know, resting like that on the edge of the pool. Those were the good old days. Those were great. When the body was, when the body was... (laughs) Michael Phelps, okay? Not anymore, though. So after you got out of high school and you went to college on a scholarship? Got a scholarship. I went to Colorado State University. Go Rams. I refer to it as Harvard Rockies. I'm sure nobody else does. <laughs> Did that and enjoyed very, very good college experience. And again, you know, athletics kind of the second you start, you're with the same crowd. You know, you're with all the athletes. So that was good. And academic-wise, what were you... No, I wasn't an All-American academically. (laughs) (laughs) Graduated, then I went to, this was during Vietnam, and there was deferments at the time for grad school. You know, so I went to grad school, then they took that away, then I went in the Army. So I went in the Army and... uh, How old were you? I was 21. And what was it like around that time? As I tell my children, there will never be another 60s again. So there you were in the Army in the 60s. Did you join or did you get drafted? No, I joined because by joining, then you kind of have a little say in what goes on. And where where you go. I went to... Didn't, wasn't it, weren't there draft numbers going Mm -hmm. on at that time? I I didn't have a good draft number, so that's when you wanted to enlist. So I went to Fort Bragg, North Carolina to start. 
And there you see prejudice the way I've never seen it before, okay? I mean, again, not just among blacks, but you see prejudice, in my case, was against Jews, Jews. okay? You enlist in the Army. How long are you in the Army for? I was in the Army a year. Okay. Okay. And um, once you're in a year, then you've served your term? Yeah, served my term a little more than a year. Did you see? Did you go overseas? No, didn't have to go overseas. I and is that a luck of the draw? Luck or? of the draw. I mean, not think about it. Man. Your mother must have been so relieved. So relieved. Okay. And her son was relieved. Um, <laughs> no. But in hindsight, you know what? I almost regret not. Okay. It would, I think it would have been a, kind of a cool experience, you know, going over there and just kind of seeing what it's really about. Okay. Which I didn't cope. I get out of the Army. Then I went to work. This was the first and last job I ever had that I got a paycheck. <laughs> what am I going to tell you? This is the first job. So you come out of the Army. You, you're a poli you're sci grad. Like, what is it right. you wanted to do? I didn't know because mm. I was trained for absolutely nothing. <laughs> but, but you knew you were coming back to L.A. because this is where your roots were. I knew I was coming back to L.A. You know, the Army teach, taught me, you know, really how to kill or pill potatoes. You know, take your pick, okay? So I didn't know if I wanted to come back to L.A. and kill or pill potatoes, okay? <laughs> no, that, that's a joke. Um, so I was at a, a friend's house, kind of in the <clears throat> same situation as me. And I'm at his house, and his father was there, a very successful man who made furniture for all the big chains, but primarily Sears. Then Sears was a big player. And we were talking, and he said that uh, he understands. He was trying to get his son to get a job, and my, you know, I'm listening to this conversation. And he said, I wanted to go into real estate, you know, to sell real estate. And then he was telling me about, oh, you know, I got to tell you that Dean Witter is hiring. And I said, oh, great, man. I'll go down there. <laughs> and I borrowed a tie from the father because I didn't own a tie. <laughs> and I went down for an interview for this real estate job. And I go down there. And the guy, you know, I had an appointment, and the guy's interviewing me and stuff, and he's asking me all these stock and bond questions, which I didn't even know he was talking about. And I'm waiting for the real estate questions to start coming, which I had kind of studied a little about, about the real estate. <laughs> and he's telling me, uh, you know, when can you start and this, and there's a training program, it's a six-month thing, you know, to get into this, you know, the stock market, you have to know this. And I'm thinking, stock market? Am I at the wrong interview? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I got hired. I truly did. I got hired as a stockbroker going in for a real estate job. That's really how it started. Wow. Yeah. So I got this. And during the training, it was a six-month program. They paid you $500 a month. $500 to me, because in the Army, I was making $160. I thought $500, I wanted to stay in the training program forever. I thought... What a gig this is. So I did this and... This and was did you what, enjoy like 1968 it? or something like that? Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I loved every... I was made for this job. I used to refer to it as smile and dial. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a rejection never affected so me. So totally place. serendipitous that you go for a real... You think, I might want to sell real estate. You go for this real estate job. It turns out to be a stockbroker and it's made for you. Made for me. Made for me. Okay, and I wound up doing this thing, you know, and almost from day one, I was good at it. Okay, just, you know, picking the clients and I I happened again, kind of it's it's a funny story, but once again, a true story that somebody had come in and given me some stock and they wanted the money to go to the Los Angeles Archdiocese of the Catholic Church, knowing nothing about that. I called up the Archdiocese of Los Angeles and I said, you know, he sold some stock and this, he, where, where do I send the money? Where does it go? The whole thing. Didn't know anything about that. And, uh, 
he got his money. Then he called me up and says, we have some stock here. Would you sell it for us? You know, okay. And I sold that and I thought, this is a pretty good gig. <laughs> and finally, you know, Barry Goldfarb, a Jew, okay, is now Dean Witter's representative I'm telling him to the Catholic Church, okay, <laughs> because I have done this twice, okay, oh and I wound up getting business with them, and he turned me on to a guy in New Orleans or someplace, you know, for the Archdiocese of New Orleans, and the same thing, and I told him, I said, you know, I'm Dean Winter's representative, you know, for the Catholic Church, and I started getting some business, and finally it led to what? What's the ultimate place you could do business with the Catholic Church? The Vatican. <laughs> Called them up. You called them up? You Barry, called them up. Barry Goldfarb, the Jew, <laughs> wants to do business because I'm Dean Witters, representative to for the, the Catholic Church. Church. Right. And I met a man who still might be, I don't even know if he's alive. I'm going back now a long time, 40 something years. I've never heard this story. No, it's a good story. And I remember the guy, he was actually an American who ran, it was called, the name of their bank was called the Institute of Religious Works which has nothing to do with a bank, but that's the name. And all this, all these things you guys check out, that's the name of their bank. And his name was Paul Marchinkus. He was an American, and he got this job because when the Pope back then came to the United States, he was an American who arranged all the security in the United States. And to thank him for what he did, you know, you have your choice. You can go to Africa or be run a bank. You can run our bank. And he, <laughs> this guy chose to run the bank. To run the bank <laughs> instead of going to the Congo or something. And we became friends and we did a little business, you know, like that. So that was – and that you turn – you know, once you can get this, you can say, listen, I do this. Then it opens up new business. So that's what I did. Did you see that in yourself when you were younger? This sort of no fear? You know, to me it was like don't take it personally. If somebody says no to you, it's just – I shouldn't say a lot of these things, but you guys could – No, you're just out. one step closer to the person that's going to say yes. Right. There's, there's an old joke. It says, I don't care who you are, but if you stand on a street corner and you ask a hundred beautiful women, will you sleep with me? There's a good chance one is going to say yes. So if you're willing to take a chance and ask enough times and try and close something, it's going to happen. Okay. That was my philosophy. And I didn't do it for that long. You know, at that point, I started. You must have been making more than the $500 a month at that point. No, they that started point, to pay you commission. And again, I have this little piece of paper, which I saved. And I was always, not always, but I was in the top 10 of Dean Witter brokers, but it was a smaller firm back then. There was maybe only 600 brokers. Then it became part of Sears and a big thing and thousands and thousands of brokers. And then. And you did that for how long? I did that for about three years. And then I was, I started, while I was a broker, I started little companies doing things. You know, as I got money, I was putting them in different ventures. And then when those ventures started getting big, I think it was time to leave the brokerage thing and go off on my own. So that brokerage job was the first and last job I ever had where I got a paycheck. And you didn't come from a moneyed family. No. So for you to be out and about and deciding to become a serial entrepreneur, which is what you are today, mm -hmm. that was a pretty bold step. I mean, you had no money to fall back on or no, no. You, you only had yourself to fall back on, which obviously was a good bet. Right. But I'm a big believer in something like whether, whether an artist, a musician, an entrepreneur, there has to be something in your DNA. You just can't tell somebody you're going to be an entrepreneur. Well, they're not. You know, it's they have to do it. 
You leave the brokerage company. Leave you are now an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. And where does this take you next? Well, that's kind of where it all started. Somebody at one point walked into my office as a broker and know exactly who it is. The whole story. Like he just died. This is Lucon. And he bought some art. And he's telling me, he said, I could get, you know, this Chagall. The guy said, it's a great deal to buy this. But if I buy two, I can even get a better deal on it. Do I want to buy one? Well, one, I didn't know what a lithograph was. I didn't know what a Chagall was, certainly. And I said, you know, I had money. I said, yeah, go buy it. You know, they're real, relatively inexpensive back then. And six months later, he comes, he says, you know, I could sell these things for us. We could double our money. Let's say whether it was 500, I could sell it for a thousand. Yeah. And I thought, <laughs> this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. It's like having a stock certificate that you can put on the wall and enjoy it, whether it's appreciating or don't sell it, but it's, it's something there. I thought this is the coolest thing I ever heard. So I opened up the first gallery in Beverly Hills. And I was that gallery was running while I was a stockbroker. And it was doing exceptionally well. And did you curate the art? Or? Mm-hmm. Ah. 100%. But curating what I thought was going to sell. And I used to go back and forth to, basically to Paris and start buying a few pieces, a few more. Then I'd buy whole editions and then sell those editions even to other galleries. Then I opened up the second gallery and a third gallery. And eventually, I must have had nine or ten galleries. And I quit the stockbroker's thing. And I realized this went on for a long time. It was a good economic time for people were buying hard assets. There was inflation and real estate. Again, I'm, I'm not sure we'll ever see this again where people were double escrowing a house. You could buy a house, put it in escrow in 30, 60 days, you could make 10% on your money. You know, real estate was going up that fast. The first house I ever bought, it was in Benedict Canyon. It was $30,000, you know, which wasn't like a great deal. It was $30,000 for this house. Um, I sold it a year later for $58,000. I only put $3,000 down. That's all I had. So think about the leverage. Right. You know, I didn't double my money. I made 1,000% of my money from 3000 on the 30000 I made. Those times, again, I'm not sure that's going to so happen. You, so you were looking at those hard assets, whether it's a house or art, as from a business perspective. Mm-hmm. As but investment. to be a successful art gallery curator and mm-hmm. owner, you must have had an eye. I'm not quite your great eye for art, but a great eye for the artists that were selling. So, and you had um, an experience where you owned a business that was in uh, Century City. That's Which had to place. do with the art gallery. So I wanted to, the Century City was kind of get, really getting started. You know, the big theme towers were not built then. Hmm. So there was a building and Century City was having problems, you know, financing some of these buildings and stuff. So anyhow, <laughs> the bottom of this building was empty and I just wanted one little space on the street to put an art gallery because that's what I was doing at the time. Thinking at this time, not only just sell investment grade art, but sell art to all these thousands of lawyers and people that are moving into Century City to decorate their offices. Okay, it was like a a two for a deal. Hmm. And the owner of the building, he said to me, he would lease the bottom of the building to me. You know, for this crazy low price because he had to refinance the building and he needed tenants. tenants. Okay. So I thought, oh, what am I going to do with the bottom of a building? You know, like, give me a thousand square feet. That's all I want, this little corner. And he said, no, you know, if you take the whole bottom, I'll give you an exceptionally good deal. I said, okay, you know, I'm going to roll dice. And I said, you know, give me a, you know, 
Give me a five. Give me a one-year lease, a two-year lease. <laughs> no, you need a 23-year lease if you want to do the deal <laughs> because it doesn't make sense. He has to show the bank that you know, if somebody has a five-year lease, they could walk in five years if you have an option. This person is in there. Well, mm-hmm. I really didn't have a whole lot of assets. If he came after me, what was he going to do? So I said, okay. So I put in the bottom of this building a flower store. Now, remember, I'm running a flower store. I didn't know anything about the flower business. Here's a flower store because I thought every office needs flowers. And I had these little flower carts that I sent people around Century City. And at night, they'd come back with the carts to sell flowers. I put in um, the art gallery. It's called Limited Edition Gallery. Again, going after the offices. The big business, which I didn't know anything about, was, lack of a better word, like a a high-class liquor store where we had liquor you know, wine, sandwiches, magazines. It was just a really nice, but really a nice store where they, again, the offices could buy their wine, buy whatever they want from me and stuff. I put in a jewelry store selling low-end jewelry for the secretaries. And the name of the business was Gavin and Goldfarb. So everybody wanted to know. Who's Gavin? Who's Gavin? (laughs) Because I read there was a, a very famous department store in Boston called Kennedy and Cohen. There never was a Kennedy but they thought there was like prejudice against Cohen, so he put in a thing similar to uh, Canner Fitzgerald. I don't think there ever was a Fitzgerald. There was this Bernie Canner who had this. Oh, it's such an interesting. I have to so, look that up. I right. wonder. I don't think there was a Fitzgerald ever. Wow. And I don't think there was a Kennedy back then. And I know for sure there wasn't. There a was Gavin. no Gavin. <laughs> there wasn't a Gavin. There was not a Gavin. I know that for sure. So I put these stores and you know a couple ones in there. And from day one, not knowing anything about flowers, jewelry, running a liquor store, they all did quite well. You know, people thought they were all different owners. One day, um, it was home savings alone at the time was the biggest savings loan in the country, which was later turned in some of their name today. But somebody bought home savings alone and they didn't have a location in Century City. And a couple, you know, they came to me and they said they'd like to rent the space where all these stores were. And they really weren't for sale. And the guy says to me, he says, well, it's almost like if I told somebody to, to go out and go buy me an apple, and I don't care what you have to pay for it, but don't come back without that apple. They wanted to be in Century City. So the guy came and he threw just some crazy number to rent the place. The number that they wanted to rent it was more than the businesses were making. And I didn't have to do anything. So... And you had a 23-year lease. <laughs> and I had a 23-year lease. Wow. And when I did this 23-year lease, everybody said, what are you, crazy? Nobody does a 23-year lease. Now, remember that part of the story. Nobody does a 23-year lease. It was actually 23 years, eight months. And they said, why didn't you get options? You know, everybody's telling me what I should have done. Well, the bottom line, well, I'll, I'll get to the end of that story in a second. But remember, 23 years, eight months. So the guy came, came up with this ridiculous rent, and he said it so fast then I thought, you know, you immediately you get seller's remorse. You know, maybe I did this a little too cheap. Then I said, but, you know, obviously, you know, you have to buy the businesses as well. Okay. <laughs> and the guy kind of looked, well, we never bought a liquor store thing. And I gave him the price for liquor store or jewelry store, this. And they did it. And that's how they moved into Century City. And when the 23 years was up, now, that, again, that bank has changed its name. The bank is still there. Um a bank is still there. But when the 23 years was up and everybody was telling me, boy, did you screw up? And they said, why didn't you get a longer lease? <laughs> you know, so that was over. And of course, I called the building up because remember, I'm the tenant. And I called the building to renew my 23 year, eight 
eight-month lease, and the building this whole time, I was a thorn in the side. Like, I'm making the money on the building. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, the building's renting to me at this, and I'm every time there was a CPI increase, it was 5% on a little amount, but I'm getting 5% on a big amount. So I went to the building, and you know, I'd like to renew my lease very innocently, and the building said to me, F off, Goldfarb. Like <laughs> you know, like, I knew there was not a chance they were going to renew my lease. Wow. So anyhow, that was the end of that story. I love that story. Right. Wow. And then, so you've got money in the bank. Are you getting married at this point? Because I want to also get to the winery. At that point, I got involved, and this is where Judy Koyama comes in the story, mm-hmm. with a bank. Co-host. And I became buying stock. It was a publicly traded bank. And buying stock in the bank, I wound up being the largest stockholder of the bank. And, you know, on the board and was actually the vice chairman of this bank. And where I met Judy Koyama, who was the operations supervisor of the bank. And she's the only one that would help me, like for my own account. Nobody else would want to deal with Mr. Goldfarb. little demanding. For whatever reason. <laughs> no. When, when the bank was sold several years later... I asked Judy, I said, why don't you come with me in whatever ventures I do? And this was 32 years ago. So for 32 years, Judy Koyama, who I still refer to, one of the two smartest women I've ever met in my life that has no formal education. Okay. The second one is... Rebecca Rostin. Rebecca (laughs) Rostin. Okay. Which is true, though. I mean, I'm not just blowing smoke. These two ladies could each run a Fortune 500 company because they know how to talk to people. Some people just don't know how to talk to people. And that's what Judy said. So, I would hug you right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so moving right on. So that was the bank. And then we got into real estate big time. We started buying properties in Houston. This one in Houston was in the toilet. And we were buying very large apartment buildings without even looking at them, where people were spending a lot of time doing due diligence and this. The government, you were buying them literally for a penny on the dollar because just as far as an appraised value, they were selling at 10%, and the government was financing 10% of that you know, from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And this when that resolution trust was going on. And we wound up with thousands and thousands of these apartment buildings that we were buying for, like I said, pennies on the dollar that we wound up selling for 30 cents on the dollar. And that guy probably sold it for 80 cents on the dollar. And today they're probably selling for $2, you know, but that's the nature of the the beast and stuff. That was the real estate story. Now we're getting into. Getting married? Yeah, getting married. Getting married. We're just about getting married now. So getting (laughs) married. You know, wait just one second here. We need to go back. You came before Donna? Same time. Same time. Same time. Yeah. Because I've been married 33 years. Right. Yeah. Met my wife. And this is a good story for these women out there that are not married. Are you married? I'm not married, but I live with my boyfriend. Okay. Mm-hmm. And most of the time she likes him. Okay. But we're going to talk <laughs> That's about... That's how I feel about my husband most of the time. How long have you been with your boyfriend? Uh, five, over five years. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about the beast right now. Okay? <laughs> I meet my wife on a blind date. Okay. But not even a normal blind date. A typical blind date is somebody's going to say, hey, you got to meet this guy. He's a great guy. And this guy is now going to call you up. What do you do? What do you do? What is this? Let's meet. You might talk three or four times before the blind date. So in this case, 
I never talked to her. A friend of mine was going out on a blind date with this other girl, and they talked several times, and he couldn't wait to meet this girl. At the last second, the girl calls him up and says, I'm so sorry. I forgot I made plans with this other girl. I can't break them. But maybe if you want to bring a friend along, the four of us could go out. So he calls me up and he says, I got this great girl for you. He didn't know her name, didn't know she was a great girl, didn't know one thing about her. I'm just, I just need a, I need a wingman. A wingman. So I was the wingman. So we all meet at this restaurant and I walk in and there's two women sitting at this table with him. I don't know which one my date is, let alone her name, but I'm hoping it was that one. Aww. So we sit down, we talk less than 20 minutes after I met her. Less than 20 minutes. I say to everybody at the table, I said, you want to know something? I have a feeling I'm going to marry this lady. Not let's get married, but I just got a feeling. I'm going to marry this lady. From the time I uttered those words, I got a feeling. And I was a successful, like I said, the bank, the businesses, you know, all this, whatever. How old are you now at this point? Yeah, like 38. 38? Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. How soon did we get married from the time I said, I got a feeling we're going to get married? One year. That's a little too long, but this I for know a, the answer, don't so I'm not, not don't answer. <laughs> this is for a washer and dryer. Yeah, if you, if you, okay, I'll give you one more guess. Four and a half months. Mm, a little less. Keep really? going. Really? Keep Three going. Months. Three months. Keep going. One month. One month. Four weeks later, we were married. You not, were married? Not engaged. Not dating. Married. Oh. Married. That's an incredible story. Yeah, I'm still married. Well, it, you're, it's an incredible story because you're still married. Yes. And you sound He married happy. exactly the right person yeah. for him. She's wonderful. As my father-in-law used to say, may he rest in peace, he says, it's the long shot that came in. And we have two beautiful children. Your children must love that story, that their parents met and were married in a month. Or it's like, are you uh, crazy? They, exactly. Oh. They, well, they, the, the most amazing part of the story is they've never had an argument. No, no, we fight. <laughs> no, we do fight. But typically in a marriage or in a relationship, uh -huh. there's four main things you fight about. What are they? Money. Money is one. Finances. Mm -hmm. Children. Children is two. Uh, where you live? Not no. really. Um, no. Politics? No. No. I'll help you out. Okay. The other one is family, meaning in-laws, mm -hmm. cousins, this. And the other is sex. Okay? Like, not sex in sex word, but sex in sex romance. I want more, she wants less. Right. Well, not even that. It doesn't have to be the physical thing, but just <laughs> intimacy. romance. Intimacy. Like, intimacy. holding hands, this. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of lumping it together. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have never fought about those things, but our fights are just as good. Well, you picked the movie last time, or why are we going there for dinner, or why do we have to see that couple? So, like, a fight is a fight, but we don't fight about those, the main four things. We just fight about stupid things, you know? But everybody. And if, they're not the things that are going to break up a marriage. Well, as I tell everybody, we just never wanted to get divorced at the same time, okay? <laughs> so, which is good. Like, if you both want to get divorced at the same time, that's different. So after this, you know, the bank, the this, I started investing in little startups, okay, and a couple of these startups, like a lot of them, and some really paid off. There was this one, it was that I helped design this patent and stuff, and it was called Expander Pack. That's my favorite story. Okay. It was a great little company, and we made packaging for post offices all over the world. We actually had a factory in Japan, which we owned, which is unusual in Nagoya, Japan. We had a factory here in Los Angeles and one in France. 
And we made this packaging, great product, great everything. We are going to do this IPO. And they had already done like a red herring on the IPO. It's like a pre-prospectus that came out. The numbers were audited. It was Ernst & Young, a real deal. And Chase Manhattan approached me and they had saw the red herring. You need to tell people what the product is because this is one of the most amazing products. Cool product, but it's hard without seeing it. And I'll tell you why. But picture a Jiffy type envelope. But in this envelope, you know, a Jiffy envelope is probably, you know, it could be three of an inch thick, quarter inch thick, whatever it is. So you can store a million of them stacked up, but you really don't get a lot of protection. You know, it's just little bubble wrap inside. Are you really going to put your eyeglasses, a printed circuit board, an egg? It's not going to make it. So we had put three inches of foam you know, two one and a half inch pieces into these plastic bags, like it looks like a jiffy, but we compress it under a vacuum. The folks out there don't see my hands going like this, compressing it, <laughs> but it's compressed, okay? And then once it's compressed, we would seal it. So in other words, we're creating a vacuum and it's keeping that foam now in that half inch from three inches, It's now it's down to a half inch so you can store it. When you release by poking a hole in the skin of the plastic and letting air in, it's releasing the foam to where it was. And this is just polyurethane foam. I'm using my hands to show a chair polyurethane <laughs> foam, okay? But this is polyurethane foam. So when you squeeze it and seal it, it will stay compressed. And we did this, really a cool product. And one day, Chase Manhattan, right a couple weeks before the IPO, they came in, saw the thing. There was really basically no negotiating because they saw what the IPO was going to be at, and they buy the company. And that was a lot of money at that time for me. Um, sold it. The company's still around today somewhere in this world. Um, I have nothing to do with it. And then looking for something to do after that. Other little products. We did little water meters, did little things, which were also patented and did well. Then the opportunity to buy the first winery became available in Paso Robles. And I bought it from... Uh, the host of Jeopardy, <laughs> Alex Trebek. And yes, yeah, so I wound up buying it from him and kind of turned it around. And this winery has done you know, quite well. Was it a purchase where you saw the value in it and that you could turn it around from a business point? Was there an emotional connection to like, oh, this will be fun to grow grapes? The emotional connection, I didn't even care about buying a winery. I, I really didn't. <laughs> uh-huh. I wanted land. Okay. I wanted something for my family to go whether it was in one year, five year, 20 years, 50 years, a place out of Los Angeles, relatively close, mm-hmm. you know, it's less than three hours away. And that's really what I wanted. It just so happens on this land happened to be a winery and a good sized winery. So I bought this and then we really turned it into a winery and now it's a real show place. It's a real nice, but a real commercial winery. So did that. Then in 2004, <laughs> we then started a winery in Santa Barbara called Oriana. And it's a fun place. Mm-hmm. It's just a fun place to go to. It's such a cool thing, too. I mean, to be in this business and to see the success that you're having in this business. Then we had the second winery. And then we bought, about 10 years ago, a winery right here in Los Angeles County called Agua Dulce. Agua Dulce is 100 acres planted, big tasting room, you know, petting zoo, a big facility where we make the wine, which is a real, real, real fun place on a weekend to go. And, you know, if you call up, we, you know, we do the tours and sandwiches and everything like what that. What kind of wine do you make? Good wine. We grow there. We actually, everything we grow, we make. Everything we make, we happen to grow there, most of it. We grow Merlot, Sangiovese, Cap, Chardonnay, Syrah, and Zinfandel. 
pretty good, huh? Mm-hmm. And then we make we make a rosé. Mm. We also make a port, and we make a lot of blends. Oh, I need to ha- sample the port. The port's the best port. We won. I love. Wait, we won the gold medal okay. in the fair as the best port made in California. I love port. Which is congrats. A pretty good thing. Now, Who's port, the winemaker? Wow. Each as talented winery. as you are, I don't think it's you. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> it's got the port story. I'm going to tell the port story. I'm going to answer your question, the winemaker, and I'm going to, and then I, I'm going to give you my home address so right. Judy can send me but some port. No, you'll have to come <laughs> pick kidding. it up at Agua Dulce. Anyhow, each winery we talked about three wineries. Each one is its own model. Each one has different type of clientele, you know, customers and stuff. The Paso Robles, which is by <clears> far the biggest of the wineries, but is really a commercial winery. So we don't get people coming to us like typical winery. You know, people come taste wine. We send wine to China. We send wine to Asia. We send, we sell to stores, different labels, different names, different everything. Mm. Oriana in Santa Barbara, the model there is really the tasting room. You know, people come, wine by the glass. I mean, you can buy what you want. And we do some wholesale business, but it's a younger crowd. You know, Santa Barbara tourists, seven days a week. Yeah. Jam crowded. Always. We're ground zero. But when I bought this place as a, not a winery, as a building, when I bought it, there was just two of us. There was Santa Barbara Winery Oriana. Now, by the end of this year, there'll be 30. So it's really wow. grown. It's really Did you know that area was going to really go. take off? No. I mean, who? I, like, yeah. you know, I should say, yeah, yeah uh-huh. sure I did. It you know, very yeah. has serendipity. Yeah. Did you ever think that you would be where you are today? No. I never gave it conscious thought. Okay, like that. I grew up, I'm going to say poor. Okay? And... It's. I started working literally when I was. I was selling papers on the corner of Olympic and La Brea when I was like ten years old. They, they don't do it anymore. They used to have like stands, you know, selling stuff, and going around home selling magazines where they drive you and selling stuff like that. But I can't even picture my kids, you know, going to drop you off in a neighborhood. Different times. Yeah, it was yeah. totally. It really was different times. So no, I never thought about that. I remember when I was a kid, my one of my biggest goals, I wanted to work at a 31 Flavors. Okay? <laughs> I did. I used to, I thought. Lofty goals. <laughs> I thought, like, what a great job. Man, can you just sit there and nobody's saying you can be eating ice cream and stuff. I thought, that's so funny. I still yeah. think that's still my favorite. I had a dream. I, my vision when I decided to do what I do for a living right now was that I would make $100,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, my God, if I could only make $100,000 a year, which, by the way, by any measure, is a lot of money. (laughs) And so when I started in 1987, I thought, oh, my God, because I was making like $12,000. And I had – I mean, we were scraping at – just how could I ever imagine that, right? And so you look back at a backward glance. But, you know, one of the things that you and I both have in common, besides the fact that we're entrepreneurs and have found the right – right way to to live our lives you're extremely generous and you run a foundation and you have a very charitable heart and i think that it would be nice to spend a few minutes talking about that i will but i do not run a foundation i am on a foundation. you're on a foundation board and there's three of us on this foundation right mm. and we give but you're responsible for for running yeah. it correctly no no it's it's definitely several hundred million dollars and we give a lot of money away we've given you know $10 million to Cedars. We've given $20 million to the Jewish home. Chapman University, their online school is now Brahman University, which we do. And any little charities. I mean, like things that you don't even realize. Um, hearing, do- not seeing eye dogs, but you give the hearing, you know, people that can't hear, they use dogs 
I like giving money to friends, charities that they're really involved in. Like we have several friends whose daughters have lupus. So to me, that touches my heart. If you could help a friend's indirectly, we have actually two friends daughters who have a rare disease which you, you usually don't know one person let alone two also affects girls young girls called Rett syndrome it'd be the closest thing to als where these young girls are just they're there but they're just like a three-year-old you know and they can't do anything so that, both of their children have this disease both totally unrelated people Okay, that these two couples didn't even know each other. Now we've kind of introduced because both their daughters have the same thing and the lupus, the same thing. So those really touch my heart. And then, you know, things involved with Israel. But you have a good heart. And so I think that that goes a long way to speaking about who you are as a person. Yeah. But again, I don't want you to think it's it's a foundation that I'm involved with. No. Well, well, I appreciate the distinction. It was a friend of mine who died, who left this money and asked me to be, you know, a trustee and a director of the two things. And uh, another big thing we didn't talk about was Our House. Our House is a great, great organization. It's like grief support. Getting back to one thing we didn't talk about. The winery business started because we started planting grapes in our backyard. That's how I got into it to start with. And we still have grapes in the backyard and we actually make wine from our backyard. And which koi is fish. And koi fish. <laughs> And we're right up the street from this Baraga Vineyards. Same grape, same soil. We make, you know, we make wine on a couple acres. And do you are you a, are you a wino? Not really. I like wine. I'm certainly not a wine expert by any means. This is kind of an odd off off um, the talk conversation we've been having. But if you could spend time with anybody, past or present, now in your life, and sort of talk about what we just talked about, who would it be? My father. Mm. He would be so proud of you. Yeah, remember this. He died in 1954. Right. So, yes, I'd like to do that. On that note, yeah. thank you. On the next Say It Forward, you may know Michaela Conlon best as Angela Montenegro from the hit crime drama Bones. It was nominated for two Emmys and was so popular that it ran for an extraordinary 12 seasons. Michaela started acting at the age of seven, performing on the off-Broadway stages of New York and on the cable documentary TV series The It Factor. She then appeared in a variety of television series such as Here and Now, JAG, and Law & Order. She's also appeared in several roles on the big screen in such movies as Enchanted, The Lincoln Lawyer, and Baby, Baby, Baby. Now you can watch her in a new TV series called Yellowstone, whose cast is led by Kevin Costner, and whose dramatic story unfolds in the great outdoors of the American West. So join us next time when we rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Michaela Conlon. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 